and welcome back to another edition of the Going for Two podcast. I'm your host, Brian Fisher, once again, flying solo this week as Matt enjoys those final few days of his vacation. As promised, we may have half the number of hosts for you this week, but you know what? We're still doubling up the number of episodes for you as we transition over to part two of our NCAA versus Alston Palooza or whatever you might want to call it. If you missed part one, it should already be in your feeds if you're a subscriber. Have a, had a great conversation with Washington professor, Dr. Jennifer Hoffman, as we discussed the really the ins and outs of the Supreme Court's landmark nine nothing decision that came down on Monday. Going to follow that up in a, in a little bit uh, with more talk about the Alston case with our next guest, Darren Heitner, a sports lawyer, a professor, and somebody who, as you'll hear in a little bit, uh, knows a ton about name, image, and likeness as well, and has some terrific thoughts on the brave new world that we are all about to enter in college athletics on July 1st. Before we get to Darren, though, I do want to remind folks out there, we have a ton of more insight on this subject and, and a whole lot more. If you sign up to the Extra Points newsletter, head on over to extrapointsmb.com, and when you go to sign up for a yearly subscription, you can use the promo code podcast and get a whopping 20% off. I like saving money. I know you like saving money out there. Use that promo code and you will not regret it because there is no better time given everything that is going on in college athletics to learn about all of the issues facing college sports on and off the field. Now, without further ado, let's bring in Darren, and I am so pleased to welcome in Darren Heitner, the founder of Heitner Legal, a sports law professor at the University of Florida, and and much, much more. Excited to have you on the show because I know there were a ton of folks out there who were anxiously awaiting a Supreme Court decision in the Olson case, really with bated breath, and I know you were certainly one of them. Having had a chance to kind of read through the decision, maybe take stock in, in the situation a little bit, what were your initial thoughts as you kind of dove into the case on Monday? I was a bit surprised. I expected a win for the athletes against the NCAA, but I was not necessarily expecting a 9-0 decision. I listened to the oral arguments months ago, and I took the impression that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh were most firmly on the athlete's side. So it wasn't very surprising if, in fact, the athletes were going to prevail, that it would be one of them writing the majority opinion. And it was It ended up being Justice Gorsuch writing for the court with uh, an incredibly powerful concurring opinion from Justice Kavanaugh. I was not necessarily expecting that. So, again, I was somewhat surprised at a 9-0 decision. I I have one friend, colleague in particular, a gentleman named Mark Edelman, who from the start uh, during the oral argument said he predicted 9-0. I thought there would probably be a few judges siding with the NCA based on the tough questions that were asked to the athletes' lawyers during the oral arguments. But as pointed out to me, uh, this is pretty commonplace during Supreme Court oral arguments. So I suppose I shouldn't have been so surprised. But again, uh, I thought that it was a very well-reasoned majority opinion. And I think the most surprising was probably the language that came out in Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, which I keep reviewing time and time again. It's, it's quite impressive. Okay, well, you, you mentioned Judge Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. It did seem to fire up just a, a ton of folks. A lot of one-liners, I feel like, made it, it made their way onto social media. What kind of precedent? It's not necessarily going to set a legal precedent, but it did seem like it kind of opened the door a bit to making some of those more those arguments further in a couple of law, lawsuits upcoming, does it not? That's right. So to be clear, the concurring opinion does not serve as binding precedent from the court, but it does serve as persuasive authority. And I would expect that his language in the concurring opinion will be used in existing pending litigation against the NCAA and also perhaps in future litigation against the NCAA. Uh, Language such as how would 
a media company, or how would you feel if a media company artificially reduced the salaries of reporters because it would protect the tradition of public-minded journalism? And things like price-fixing labor is price-fixing labor. You know, he, he went as far to talk about whether or not there should be any restrictions whatsoever on compensation for athletes and suggested that there would be inherent problems with opening up the door beyond specifically academic related compensation, which by the way, was simply limited to such by the district court in this litigation. And that's why you didn't see the majority opine on it. Kavanaugh took this case and found an opening to discuss what he wanted to discuss. And so he said, look, there could be problems uh, with regard to going beyond academic related uh, compensation. And if we were to get into a situation where athletes were really in business with the universities, we could have a situation that puts non-revenue sports at risk of being depleted. We have a potential Title IX issue. Uh, But he mentioned that it doesn't necessarily have to be litigation that resolves those issues. If, in fact, we went down that road, it could also be legislation. And we've seen Congress, for better or for worse, try to talk about at least name, image and likeness and some other issues recently. Or it could be through collective bargaining. And I thought that was really interesting, opening up the door to the possibility that at some point in the future, college athletes could form a unit and collectively bargain with the universities. You know, I, I don't often get a chuckle reading Supreme Court opinions, but but I did kind of when Justice Gorsuch wrote about the, the no Lamborghini rule that that did kind of raise my eyebrow a little bit. Could you maybe explain for the listeners out there what what you think it's going to mean in practice, some of the limits on the educational rules and, and how, how far do you think maybe this might get pushed in terms of ultimately what is part of that no Lamborghini rule, as they said? <laughs> yeah, the no Lamborghini rule is good. Um, I got a chuckle out of that myself. So it goes to the argument that the NCA was making at oral arguments, which is that, you know, this will lead to a slippery slope. What is and is not an academic related uh, benefit? And the justices were having none of that. So by and large, the justices believe that it's very easy to distinguish between education-related benefits and what is not an education-related benefit. And that's why the use of Lamborghini was implemented and input into the decision itself. If an athlete receives a Lamborghini from a university, it's very clear and apparent that that is not an education-related benefit. However, there absolutely will be circumstances where it is much less clear. And what the, what the next step in this entire process is will be the parties going back to the district court level, which had its injunction affirmed by the Supreme Court, and ask the judge for her input when there, are, when there is any confusion as to what is and is not considered to be an education-related benefit. Uh, obviously, computer costs, things like musical equipment, if an athlete's involved in, as a musician or otherwise, internship opportunities, studying abroad, those would be the things that we think about when it comes to educational-related benefits. But I'm sure there can be circumstances where, again, it's not quite clear. And so this is a case that nine years down the line after the Supreme Court weighs in, I suppose, is still open and active to the extent that there is confusion. 
it always seems like maybe maybe the third rail for the NCA to, to never really go there is, is always been talking about athletes as employees. It, it seems like this door may be jarred slightly open now to where we could maybe pursue that path. And I know the NCA doesn't want to, but do you see the possibility now going forward where there is some sort of unionization effort, there is maybe some sort of collective bargaining effort so that the NCAA can kind of get around some of the issues that were brought up by this case and, and kind of keep the entire enterprise essentially as, as it is as best they can. Well, I think what's interesting, if you think back, you had an effort by Northwestern football players to unionize. And in fact, they were successful at the regional level. And then when it went to the full board in DC, it was sort of punted. Um, and there are issues state by state when you're trying to create a, a union and require it with public entities. And I understand that. But then there's also been the creation of something called the NCPA, which is a trade association for athletes. Could we see that uh, organization or a separate unit evolve into something that's larger that ultimately does collective bar- collectively bargain with the universities slash conferences? I think... You know, it's, it's a wait and see. What's interesting is that the NCAA has so focused on this issue of employment for quite some time. In fact, if you look at the efforts on the national level, there have been multiple pieces of legislation proposed by numerous lawmakers about name, image, and likeness. And I thought what, what was very interesting is that some of these proposals explicitly call out athletes as not being employees. Why would that be in there? It has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness because the NCA has lobbied very strongly to put that in there. In fact, the reason the NCA has done nothing for so long on name, image, and likeness is because it held on to this hope and begged Congress to do something for so long, including creation of a provision on the national level to call out athletes as not being employees. That's a big issue for them. And so I think absolutely this opinion, um, and and again, it's a concurring opinion by Kavanaugh. It's not binding precedent. It's persuasive. But I think that people will latch on to it and potentially use it for purposes such as the possibility of creating a bargaining unit and collectively bargaining in the future. So you mentioned name, image, and likeness. That's the other hot topic as we we approach that July 1st deadline where a lot of those state laws go into effect. When you look at this case in particular, a lot of folks at the NCAA were saying they were waiting for this decision to come out, see how it might affect that NIL process. Do you, do you see this putting some potential like guardrails on that NIL process as the NCAA considers it at D1 council meetings this week and next? Actually, the opposite. Um, you know, As we're talking right now, the D1 council is meeting uh, and prior to uh, the decision in Alston uh, and prior to a memo that was disseminated by many uh, conference commissioners only a few days ago, the belief was that the NCA would finally take its legislation, which it's been sitting on for months, and put it up for a vote. And for many months, there was even the inclusion of something called a third-party administrator, which was to oversee the entire process, review the deals, and either approve and deny them by and between the athletes and third parties. Why I think this decision actually changes that strategy and, in fact, makes it less likely for there to be guardrails at the NCAA level is now the NCAA has to be concerned that the decision, the majority decision written by Gorsuch, can be used against the NCAA if it is too restrictive against the athletes. 
if they are, if the NCAA limits what the athletes can do in the same sense that it limited what they could do from an academic related cost perspective and is in essence acted as a cartel in limiting the types of deals that the athletes can get involved in, it seems as though the NCAA is, is being a violator in the same way that it was with in the Alston case. So I think it's more likely now that the NCAA does not have those guardrails in place, does not pass any legislation whatsoever, and instead decides that it's not going to penalize schools and athletes for participating in name, image, and likeness opportunities, whether they're in a state that has a law that's effective or not. But in those states that don't have effective laws on name, image, and likeness, it'll be left up to the individual universities to create their own policies and enforce them. That's the road that I see the NCAA traveling. Now, I do want to back up just a little bit. You've been heavily involved in, in the NIL process in the state of Florida. I wonder if you could maybe explain a little bit about your background and, and how you kind of help shepherd this, this law along in, in the Sunshine State there. Sure. I was pleasantly surprised to receive correspondence from uh, Representative Chip Lamarca, who represents my district in the state of Florida, and his legislative aide, Corey Stadicia, going back, I think it was September, October of 2019. I know it was surrounding the time in which California actually became a first mover on this subject, passed its legislation, but with an effective date of 2023. And so I was brought in to help with strategy and creation of legislation in the state of Florida and also with promotion. And ultimately, we created legislation that was put in front of the House in the state of Florida in the beginning of its legislative session right around January 1 of 2020. What's really interesting about that first piece of legislation is that we had an effective date of July 1, 2020. Not many people know that. Uh, We were really ready to push the envelope in the Sunshine State. Uh, But when the bill went to the Senate in, in the state of Florida, there was trepidation and a belief that there should be a larger runway. And so ultimately we got to July 1 of 2021, but it, but we were the first state to have such an early effective date for name, image, and likeness. And in June of 2020, Governor Ron DeSantis ended up signing the bill into law. And so for over a year now, everyone has known, the NCAA, Congress, and otherwise, that Florida was ready and prepared to have a name, image, and likeness law active uh, as of July 1 of this year. There was a little bump in the road this past legislative session that not all may know. Uh, at the last minute of the session, in fact, a couple of days before the end of the legislative session, an amendment was inserted into a completely unrelated bill to push back the effective date to July 1, 2022. That was fixed by way of another amendment and after a lot of lobbying by various coaches uh, in the state of Florida. And so here we are. You know, it's funny because uh, you mentioned California kind of being one of the first states out of the the gate, uh, Florida obviously pushing the envelope. But recently we've seen a lot of states play catch up and very quickly, but they've also had some unique provisions across various state lines. I mean, you're you're talking about various state legislatures getting involved. It can get messy. Have you seen anything out there that has caught your eye in terms of the differences among these state laws, especially the ones that are going to go into effect on July 1st? You know, it's hard to remember offhand. I've looked at so many bills and laws. I know. There's distinctions between all of them. I'd say the most restrictive ones thus far, probably the most restrictive one is Mississippi. And then Texas also 
limits a lot of the types of industries and companies that can get involved with athletes. Whereas, you know, a state like Florida or New Mexico doesn't explicitly restrict any type of company from having access to an athlete. But, um, yeah, you know, you'd have to look at the various state laws. Georgia was a very interesting one because all of a sudden it had some sort of pooling provision that allows uh, the universities to take the monies earned by the athletes and up to a certain percentage cause them to share with the general population of athletes at those schools. Interestingly, it's not a requirement, it's a suggestion. And from what I've heard, none of this, none of the schools are actually going to follow through with it. Uh, but all the, all the laws have their little nuances here and there. Uh, you have to, you have to look at each one very carefully and hopefully uh, the schools, the athletes, the agents, the third party service providers, and everyone else who are getting involved in the space are, are actually looking at, at the specifics of those laws. You know, it, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, I've, I've been on campus a couple of times uh, the last couple of weeks, talked with a lot of administrators and coaches around it. I still get a lot of shrugs over what ultimately is going to happen when that calendar flips to July 1st. Uh, I'm curious, what, what do you think is, is going to kind of play out not only in the state of Florida, but I think elsewhere, especially in those states that maybe do not have a law, but are hoping something gets happened. Something happens with the NCAA that, that permits them to, you know, allow NIL for their athletes. Yeah, as I mentioned, that's the expectation that at this point, uh, all athletes across the country will have rights with regard to name, image, and likeness, uh, and that you know, to the extent that a, a state has a law, that will be the rules, and otherwise, it'll be the schools creating their own policies. I think you're going to see the bigger brands, the Fortune 500 companies, the Cokes, Pepsi's, Adidas's, Nikes, and so on and so forth, kind of slow play this. I don't think they're going to be first movers. I think they're going to take some time, really formulate what their strategies will be, um, make sure that they apply it properly and sort of wait and see how things shake out with the smaller to mid-sized companies, the local regional companies that really want to make a splash and a name for themselves. And those probably will be the first deals that are submitted to the universities for clearance. Understand there will be a process by which deals have to first be vetted by the universities and ultimately approved. Um, But we should also, I, I expect that we'll see a lot of announcements that you know, there's deals in principle or that there's certain companies that expect or, or desire to work with specific athletes. We've already started to see a few of those, but I think that we'll see a lot more come July 1. But this is a process that'll play out over time. As I mentioned, the effectiveness of any of these deals won't be July 1. So we probably won't see true deliverables by the athletes being played out on Instagram, Twitter, social media networks, and so on and so forth. But as of July 1, any athlete can create his or her own business, which is pretty beautiful. And we have seen a lot of these businesses kind of pop up out of nowhere these last couple of months, a number of NIL marketplaces that schools have done deals with uh, to kind of provide that option for athletes. But the NCAA has essentially opened up the road in the path and certain state laws have for the hiring of marketing agents and and various uh, people connected with this. What what are your kind of expectations surrounding hiring of, of these marketing agents, both from an athlete perspective and what these agents might need to kind of understand with this kind of new era that we're seeing uh, with regard to essentially representing amateurs? Yeah, I, I have multiple calls per day with numerous agents that are trying to really get a grasp and understand what's to come and what they should be doing now and what they should be looking for in the future. I think there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, what is permissible? What won't be permissible? And Part of that is because 
we really still don't know with certainty what the NCA will do, if anything at all. And if nothing and, and kicking the can to the schools, what will be the school's policies? So there's a lot yet to be known. And then even the agents who have players associations and their respective regulations that they must abide by, they're still trying to figure out what is permissible and what is not, because they also don't want to run afoul of those regulations. And finally, they have to look at the various existing state and federal laws governing sports agents. But I expect there will be many, perhaps the majority of athletes won't have an agent whatsoever. Uh, But I do expect the higher earning, the quote unquote more valuable athletes, the star quarterbacks, the star wide receivers, to engage representation, whether it be in the form of agents, attorneys, or both. Uh, And importantly, the agents or attorneys need to be licensed in the states in which they're practicing, uh, which is a requirement in with regard to the name, image, and likeness laws that have been passed thus far. But again, we don't really have any clarity from the NCA on this. They have not opined and provided their position with regard to marketing agents whatsoever. It does seem like, though, that they, there does want to be, at least uh, on the part of the NCAA leaders, some separation between the, the the true agents representing their clients in the NFL draft or whatnot and kind of that marketing aspect. And it's, it does seem like there are certain agencies that might be able to get into the, the ball game and play both. Do you kind of see that? working its way out to where you know, you're in South Florida, Drew Rosenhaus has a marketing agent that also represents college athletes. And obviously there's, there might not be a, a signature to where you definitely choose Drew or somebody like that uh, to represent him when you turn pro, but obviously that there's some concern over some of that wink, wink, nod, nod. If people are kind of playing both sides of the fence well, here. In reality, there should be absolutely no restriction on an agent who happens to be licensed with a Players Association also providing marketing related services for an athlete. Um, Because as you mentioned, if it's not that specific agent, you can find another agent at that firm or a third party who basically is at arm's length with that agent who's providing those services. But if the player really wants to be represented by that individual, I don't see why that's a problem. Really what I think a lot of the laws and perhaps the NCA is looking at and hopefully is looking at is that the agents should not be putting a professional representation agreement in front of the athletes. So for instance, with the NFL, it's called a standard representation agreement, an SRA. With the NBA, it's called a SPAC, a standard player agent contract. Those specific contracts that bind the player and the agent so that the agent can represent the player for his or her professional pursuits. That's what we really want to avoid here. But I personally have no issue if that agent who happens to represent 100 NFL players also is signing marketing specific representation agreements with college athletes and only providing those types of services to the college athletes, whether it be in the procuring of those opportunities and or the negotiation of them. You know, there has been a lot of focus on those those football star athletes, obviously the, the men's basketball athletes that uh, garner a lot of attention. But it seems like NIL is really more than anything, a huge platform for some of the Olympic sport athletes, especially female athletes. We heard that a lot. What do you think the size of some of those deals might look like? Let's face it, we, we do have the Olympics coming up around the corner. That's a, a great marketing opportunity, not only for those participating, but around those sports. How do you see that market play out uh, for athletes that maybe you're not uh, the star? football player? You know, we won't know until we're there. And I think that's sort of the beauty of all this. I'm absolutely in favor of as close to a free market economy as possible. 
I think, you know, opportunity, it should be opportunity abound. Um, you know, the market should dictate what the athlete's value is. And as you mentioned, we have an amazing opportunity right before us with the Olympics coming up and obviously a very short window between July one and when these athletes are participating uh, overseas. And so we may start to see it, although there may not be enough time for as many deals as you know, what would one would expect perhaps two years from now, four years from now, after you know, the dust has settled with regard to name, image, and likeness. But it's really hard to peg, especially because every individual has his or her own story. And it's not only necessarily about how great the athlete is in his or her performance at his or her sport. It may not only be how many followers that athlete has, whether purchased or authentic. A lot of it has to do with the story and the person and the connection with the brand and the types of goods and services the athlete enjoys and so on and so forth. So, you know, I know that there's people who try their best to peg what athletes can get, whether they're revenue or non-revenue sport athletes. But I try not to play that game. What I will say is that I, I would expect some of the top athletes, let's say the star, star quarterbacks, the Trevor Lawrence's of the world. I think they can easily make seven figures a year. You you mentioned Trevor Lawrence. I know Zion Williamson's name has come up a lot, just to how big of a star he was going before he even got to Duke. But it, for those big time athletes, uh, you handle a lot of intellectual property and, and whatnot. Well, if you were advising them coming out of high school, as they get all these recruiting pitches from, from coaches, as they look at the NIL market, what would you advise them coming out of high school, entering this new era of NIL? You are a brand. You as an individual are a brand. Create a business around that brand. Start a company, incorporate ASAP, perhaps run deals through that corporate entity. Get an accountant on board, figure out whether there's tax related benefits. Get a strong financial advisor on board. Start conducting your diligence right now on those service providers. If you want a manager, an agent, a lawyer, so on and so forth, start building your business team. Get people that you're very comfortable with. Um, and you mentioned intellectual property to the extent that you have anything that's protectable, whether you've created any content that's uh, that has the capacity of being copywritten, whether you have whether you have something that may be trademarkable. So, you know, you've created a brand surrounding a name or and you have a logo and so on and so forth. Maybe you've actually even you have an invention that's patentable. Um, start considering what you have, what you possess, what you've created or want to create and how you can properly protect it. And as I mentioned, build a strong team around you. Uh, and, I, and that's a recommendation that I provide to professional athletes. So now with new opportunities for college athletes, you can just start that process even soon. Well, that's a fast, fantastic way to get out of here. Darren, if, if the listeners want to kind of follow you and, and keep up with, with what you've been doing, what, what's the best way to, to find you online? On social media, just my name, Darren Heitner, and my law firm is Heitner Legal. All right, terrific stuff there on a number of key issues from Darren. Be sure to check out these show notes. We'll link out to his social media and his website if you want more information. And be sure to head on over to extrapointsmb.com. Sign up for a subscription there if you haven't already. As usual, use that promo code podcast for 20% off. Old friend of the pod, Sam Ehrlich from Boise State, already had a great look at the NCAA's historic loss in this Alston case, and I'm sure we'll have even more in the coming days and weeks to come on a whole host of other subjects. Thank you so much for putting up with my scratchy voice. 
voice this week. Hopefully we covered all the bases when it came to the Supreme Court decision. And we'll be sure to get Matt's thoughts on the subject when he gets back next week. And, and look, this this will certainly be far from the only time we will get to discuss this case, because as you may have heard, the, the floodgates, if, if they weren't already open when it comes to co- athlete compensation, they soon will be. So it's going to be a lot to digest. And I know some might be listening to what has been said this week and worry about uh, what they will end up seeing on the field this fall or even some of the sites that we've been seeing on in Omaha with the College World Series this week. Don't worry. I, I know this is this is not going to be a death knell for Ohio State or Michigan or USC or UCLA or Texas or Florida or whoever it might be out there. There will be some changes, sure, but uh, everybody you know and love is still going to be around. So, look, I, I've been super excited to watch the Olympic trials this week uh, up in Eugene and over in Omaha. And, uh, you know, the Olympics kind of went through a similar process not all that long ago and came out just fine. So uh, probably even to the point where I'm sure a few of you will be out there tuning into the Olympics this fall. Now, all that being said, we'll see if this all, all of the stuff that we've been talking about this week really does serve as a wake up call for the folks in Indianapolis and, and maybe just important those university presidents who continue to kind of nominally lead college athletics. I know the NCAA has spent millions on this case to lose nine nothing. And those same presidents gave the guy in charge of that strategy a contract extension. So uh, I wouldn't exactly hold my breath on that front, but it's definitely something that we'll keep an eye on here on the podcast. And I mean, it's kind of funny, uh, honestly, that the one thing, the one thing that can truly garner bipartisan support in this day and age is to be pro athlete and anti NCA. And, and look, Mark Emmert has, between this 9 nothing ruling, between the congressional hearings that we've been watching the last couple of weeks, even the statements from the Biden administration and their solicitor general in this case, has managed to get all three branches of the U.S. government united against a common cause. So um, that, that might be one of the most unbelievable things of all. But, you know, what the NCA uh, or the college leaders who have kind of nominally been in charge, like the conference commissioners, could have avoided all of this a long, long time ago. They could have addressed this you know, during or, or after the abandoned case. It, they didn't. And, and now we're about to embark on you know a road that is filled with a ton of much needed and hopefully well-meaning reforms over the coming months and years. Either way, it is an incredible time to have an interest in sports at this level. There should be absolutely tons to discuss. Beyond this Alston case, we got college football playoff expansion moving forward. The D1 Council is is maybe, possibly, perhaps deciding on something on NIL by the time next week's episode releases. So there will be much, much more. And it has been so much fun piloting the ship here the past few days. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Brian D. Fisher, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Ton of thoughts there on the decision that uh, we've been discussing, plus a lot of the news that is coming kind of fast and furious both this week and next. But we'll have much more with Matt when he gets back starting next week and, and hopefully over the weeks to come as we kind of digest and, and process what is all going on with college athletics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Go ahead and tell your friends. Give us those five stars more than anything. And for my vacationing co-host, Matt Brown, I'm Brian Fisher. We'll catch you next week on the next edition of Going for Two.